0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Cool and Gather podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our Advent series. Advent is not merely a time where we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, but rather a moment where we eagerly anticipate the return of our King. This series aims to use Old Testament prophecies to remind us of the good news of not only Jesus' birth, but His reign and the moment He'll come again, To find out more about our Christmas services, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. But for now, enjoy the message.
1: Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor.
2: Well, if I can do that without tipping over my laptop, I think we're in for a good time, friends. (laughs) Uh, As Katie said, uh, my name's Alex. Feel free to call me Al in the uh, invitation of Paul Simon from the 1980s. And uh, I have the privilege of serving as uh, pastor at New Life Brisbane, one of the plants from New Life, uh, because we believe as a church-planting family of churches that we can do more together for renewal, not just in and through, but for the sake of Australia, um, in and through the Uniting Church. And so our hope is that by seeing more people, more like Jesus, and planting and leading thriving local churches, uh, we'll be part of a move that God is doing, not just through our family of churches, but perhaps in the church in Australia. For the world. And so it's a delight just to be with you. And also, too, to be part of a church-planting family where we can share uh, preachers in this way. Uh, we have Dave Skembury uh, a few months back preaching in Brizzy. Scott comes periodically from time to time. And, uh, and the real goal is, uh, is just to open up the Scriptures and let us sit under the weight of God's Word to be shaped and transformed. So I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to jump in into uh, continuing our Advent series. So why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's just come before the Scriptures this morning with open hearts. Open ears, ready feet for the sake of God's kingdom. God, we pray that you by your Spirit would speak. Father, thank you that your word never returns void, and that though I've prepared a sermon, you are going to preach a myriad of sermons right now because your word is living and active, and you've got a unique word for each of us as we come under your one word the inspired text of Scripture. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak. We don't want to leave this place the same way we walked in. We want to look a little bit more like your son because of what you share with us now. So we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'm a sucker for a happy ending, I don't know about you, but uh, it's this time of year where we get the Christmas movies out, my wife and I sort of get the odd sort of classics on repeat, Uh, for me it goes Die Hard, Home Alone, Love Actually, uh, followed closely by Elf. Any sort of fans in the room of either of those? Why don't you turn to your neighbour and just articulate your favourite Christmas movie and why? You got a few seconds. Wonderful. Any uh, any Home Alone fans in the room? Yep, millennial favourite, you're welcome. Any diehard fans? Yep, don't want to be sexist, but you're welcome. Gentlemen, enjoy that one. Any fans of The Holiday? Shame on you, that's not a Christmas movie. And, uh... But I will be honest, I'm a big fan of happy endings, and I think it's because uh, I chase joy in life. I'm a big fan of happy endings, and... Uh, And I think it's because I chase joy in life, and I think it's because I grew up on a steady diet of Disney. Most Disney movies finish with a happy ending, a joyous ending. And I think it's more satisfying that way, because could you imagine if Aladdin and... What's her name? Jasmine. Goodness me. Could could you imagine if I forgot their names? Imagine if Aladdin and Jasmine whisked off on the magic carpet ride only to two years later break up because of irreconcilable differences. Just wouldn't have the same satisfaction or if Beauty and the Beast sort of couldn't make themselves compatible because he wouldn't get the haircut she always wanted him to get. It just wouldn't have the same satisfaction. Why? Because, well, humans crave joy. We crave happy endings. We crave resolution. We crave happiness. We crave joy. In fact, John Lennon would put it like this. He um, was talking, recollecting from when he was growing up. He said, when I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. I told them they didn't understand life. John Lennon. We crave happiness as humans. We crave joy. And I get the distinct pleasure of this morning of articulating what I think is some sense of Christian definition of joy, perhaps even happiness. Now you'll hear some preachers come along and they'll draw a distinction between those two words. They'll say joy is internal, happiness is external. It's based on the Latin word happenstance, which is based on circumstance. So don't aim for happiness, aim for joy. That's just an etymological argument and it really doesn't make much sense. When you open the scriptures, these two words actually have a bit of crossover. Um, Joy is somewhat like happiness and happiness is somewhat like joy. So I'm going to use the terms interchangeably this morning uh, to give us a picture of what I think hopefully is the Bible's Invitation to joy. We're continuing our Advent series, and in Advent, we've got the joy, pun intended, of walking through particular themes that come up at Christmas time hope, peace, love, and today, joy. And the big idea I want us to take away from this morning as we open up the prophet Isaiah is that unless we find our joy in Jesus, our joy won't last. Unless we find our joy in Jesus, our joy won't last. We're going to see that through two sort of panels. Panel one, is a joy that's coming. And panel 2 we'll discover a joy that has already come. A joy that's coming and a joy that has already come. So number one, a joy that's coming. The context of Isaiah 61, it's addressed to Israel on the other side of exile. Now, Isaiah, he prophesied that if Israel, the Old Testament people of God, the nation that God brought through the waters of the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses, established their patterns, for life and worship, gave them a manifesto for how they should live in the Old Testament law, 600 and something commands, and gave them promises that if they committed to these commands and lived the way of Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that they would inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. God would establish his presence in the temple. He'd establish his rule and reign through the seat of government that the king would sit on, but they disobeyed his laws. And so now they find themselves on the other side of these exile, they're in a foreign country. And as is writing, he's writing to the Jews who God said, if you disobey my laws, you'll find yourself in exile under a foreign country, in a land not your own, without a temple within which I sit, without a seat of government on and from which I rule. And so in 587 BC, Babylon in response to the disobedience of God's people, rolls through Jerusalem, ransacks the city, destroys the temple, and whisks God's people off to their own place. Forty-odd years later, Israel continues to be disobedient to God. How good is this for a Sunday morning on joy, right? But <laughs> 40-odd years later, Israel continues to be disobedient to God, and an entire generation now is passed, and King Cyrus of Persia, he rolls through And he rolls over Babylon. And the new ancient Near Eastern superpower goes from being Babylon to now Persia. And under the rule of King Cyrus, the Jews are allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But when they get there, it no longer resembles the Jerusalem that God promised. The city's been ransacked. The temple's been destroyed. The seat of government has been put into rubble. this hoped-for meeting place between heaven and earth, God's people and God, now eclipsed. And if the Jews needed any sign that God had departed from them and from their city, this was it. Here we are sitting in mourning, covered in ashes, lamenting the departure of our God, wondering at the future stability of our nation questioning the certainty of our identity. What do we do? And then Isaiah prophesies, verse 2 to 3, about this guy, this figure, this unnamed king who's coming. And what's he going to do? It says these words, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Here you've got the promise of a coming king, future orientated. There's a figure who's coming and he's going to roll back the tide on evil. He's going to unhinge the stronghold of sin and he's going to establish his rule and reign. Rejecting that which is old, judging it, and renewing that which is good for the sake of a better, more beautiful, and incredible existence. That's the story. That's the promise. That's what this coming figure is going to do. I want to zoom in on one phrase, though. The word used at the end of verse 3, I think it is, is the Lord's favor. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's interesting about this, and we'll just jump into some application after this sort of like little rabbit trail for a second... But the rabbit trail, just go with me on this, that phrase comes from a particular part in the Old Testament uh, in Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord's favor borrows language from that, and Leviticus chapter 25 is is all about what they call the year of the jubilee. Now, what's that? It's not a Pentecostal dance party, but it is something interesting. The year of the jubilee, you you have to follow me with this one. Um, You're familiar with the Sabbath. One out of every seven days, the Lord instituted God's people to rest. Make sense? Then the Jews, through God's law, instituted something else. It's called the Sabbath year. On the Sabbath year, not one out of every seven days, but one out of every seven years, what would happen is all debts would be forgiven, all servants would go free, and the land was precluded from being worked on for one of the seven years. That's what happened, the Sabbath, Sabbath, the Sabbath year. One out of seven days is a Sabbath day. One out of seven years is a Sabbath year. But God did one better. On the Sabbath, 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 or I mean, not one out of seven days, not one out of seven years, but seven sevens out of seven years, on the 50th year, God instituted what's called the Jubilee. Now, I think you're with me, but that was a lot to get through, wasn't it? What happened on the year of the Jubilee? On the year of the Jubilee, not only were all the debts forgiven, but if you lost your land in any time in that 49 years, it came back to your family. Interesting, right? And the purpose of the Jubilee was that sons and daughters would not be economically or morally determined by the sins of their parents. So what's the promise of the prophet to a people in a land that's broken, from which God seems to have departed? In which it feels as if we are living in the end result of the sins of our parents. Because a generation has passed. Where's God? Why are, we, why are we experiencing the result of their failures? My parents' failures. My parents' parents' failures. And here's the prophet. A day's coming where you will not be morally or economically determined by the sins of your parents. In other words, it feels like I've gone and I've left and the land on which you are is not your own. I'm coming back and it'll be restored to you with me in the center of it. That's what he's saying. Here's what Jubilee to the master of a slave Jubilee was supposed to say this. Just remember, the only reason they were serving you was because of their own foolish choices, not because you're superior to them. Let them go free. That's what Jubilee said to the master of a slave in that context. To a slave themselves, Jubilee would say, you are not the sum result of your own choices. You are precious to me, says God. To a slave's son or daughter born into slavery with no land, Jubilee said this, you are not the result of your father's sins and silly choices. You are God's child and I have an inheritance for you. Why? And this is the big takeaway point, because God's promise to the world is this, he is going to undo all that sin has tarnished. Or the disobedience of the communities of which we're a part, or the wrongdoing that flows from my own individual heart. God is going to sum it all up in this promised figure and do away with it. That's his big promise. And this is good news. This is the best news ever. Because in my experience, something I've discovered about joy is that joy can feel really trivial and really fleeting. Let me give you some examples. I was reading this week, and uh, I don't know if you, any of us here watch sort of some Netflix TV series, but a few years ago there was a lady named Marie Kondo who came onto Netflix. Does anyone remember Marie Kondo? Yeah. Yep, a couple of us. And uh, so Marie Kondo, she's what they call a organising consultant. Didn't know if you know this existed, this is a Japanese thing, I think it's a Japanese export, Uh, but Marie Kondo, uh, she would be put into people's living rooms and houses, and she um, would come and consult on how they should organise their lives and clean up their house and come up with systems to keep things sort of functioning and not being chaotic. And one of her rules for how you know whether you should keep an item or discard an item, in other words, like combat hoarding, is, is pick up an object, And if when you see it and hold it, keep it if it sparks joy in your heart. Isn't that nice? She wrote a book, and uh, I I just love the title of the book. It's it's called Spark Joy, The Illustrated Guide to the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. (laughs) Arthur Brooks, he's a Harvard Business School lecturer. He also writes for The Atlantic. He argues that uh, joy is just one of... Three ingredients in a really successful life. Uh, To have a successful life, you need joy, you need satisfaction, you need purpose. That's his take on it. And my takeaway from those two examples at the end of each spectrum is this, that joy can be a fleeting feeling, or it can be this appropriate response to this external circumstance. All of it's legitimate, but each of it is fleeting. Because here's the assumption, right? Here's the assumption. I will feel joy in this broken world when something good happens. That's legitimate. That's entirely appropriate. Examples include when your dog finally obeys the command you give it, bit of joy. My dog Jack, that's rare. When it happens, I'm stoked. Another bit of joy that might strike your heart even this Christmas season is when you realize that the spouse that you've been dropping hints to took the bait and bought you the present that you'd longed for. bit of joy, Christmas morning, glad tidings, you're welcome. Another bit of joy you might feel in this life is when you're at dinner and conversation's going so well that time seems to slow down, you forget the outside world, and beautiful. Another bit of joy you might experience is, particularly if your children have left the nest and they're now making their way in the big wide world and they're, they're accomplishing what they set out to do, and you sit there and go, that makes me so proud. Joy. What unites all these experiences of joy? What unites them is this that in a broken, sinful, sometimes evil world, something good happens. What's the prophet promising? He's promising a world in which only good happens. Do you see that? Someone's coming, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to comfort those who mourn. He's going to do away with evil and injustice. That's why he combines jubilee and judgment. When I was a teenager, I finally got my P-plates. I really wanted to buy a Volkswagen Combi. I'm really glad I listened to my parents. Because these things are beat up, they're rusty, They basically don't work, and if you get them to work, you're going to spend thousands of dollars just trying to keep them going with fuel and repairs and moving parts. Should have bought a Tesla, am I right? (laughs) But if you want to renew a combi, here's what you can't do. Plaster Plaster and paint over all the rust, all the cancer, all the decay. You need to do away with the decay, all the rust, all the cancer tied up in the car, get rid of all the parts that are actually just going to cause you trouble down the end, and then you need to start being the beauty and the goodness and all the nice parts and the nice leather seats and the beautiful trimmings, and, and what does is, what is it assume? To have something beautiful, renewed, good all the time, you need to do away with the old, you need to introduce the new, and God promises the same thing through the prophet Isaiah in the face of this figure, Jubilee and vengeance altogether. What's the result? Well, the result is what Sam Ganji said after he woke up in the Lord of the Rings novel. He, the ring that represented temptation and evil and the thing that would put into question all the friendships and good and beauty of the world had been thrown into the fiery pit of Mount Doom. And the mission of the fellowship was over. Sam Ganji had passed out, but he'd started to wake up and he thought he was in heaven. Why? Because there before him was Gandalf, the sort of Christ-like figure through whom the reign of good and beautiful and true was coming to bear upon Middle Earth. And Sam Ganji looks at Gandalf and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Are all the sad things going to come untrue? And the answer of the Christian story, the answer of Christmas... The invitation of this prophet is that in this figure, who's not yet named, with the joy that's coming, yes, all the sad things will come untrue. Here's what this has done in my life. When you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, you don't mind walking through darkness for a bit. You've heard the phrase, people say it all the time, that person's so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. The Christian story doesn't make that possible. Why? My wife and I walked through some grief recently. And when you're walking through grief, there's nothing so comforting as the promise that one day this will be summed up and done away with. Now, if you've not been through grief, you don't understand the power of what I'm saying. I didn't when I used to preach this exact line. But if you've walked through suffering, lost a loved one, didn't get the life that you thought you'd experience in this world, then the notion that one day there will be a beautiful world, all pain, all grief, all sickness, all decay, all sin done away with, the personal sin of my heart and the systematic sin of the world that the world participates, all done away with, then that pulls you through. It's kind of like some of you right now, you're still going through work and work feels like labor, like thorns, like thistle. Some of you might say like suffering. I just don't want to get up for another day. But January 20, sorry, December 22nd, this Friday, is coming, and you're like, i just got to get to Friday. Hope works a little bit like that, and the promise of joy works a little bit like that. Because this is coming, the joy that is coming, I can walk through right now. That in other words, if I'm so heavenly-minded, I'm actually good on the earth, and I'm good in this world. That's the joy that is coming. All the sad things untrue, but let's find out how it comes and through whom it comes comes, the joy that's coming and the joy that came. How do we get this joy? Look at verse 1 with me. It reads this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now you might think there's no name there, brother. Is that meant to help us identify who this figure is? If you read all of the book of Isaiah, um, it's like 60 plus chapters, so You'll you'll need a few days. But you will discover that it begins to talk about this strong Davidic king that is coming. In Isaiah 11, it says that someone is coming to quote-unquote raise a banner to summons the nation. And it says these words, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. He'll put down evil and he'll make right what needs to be made right. Right. And this is what Isaiah 61 is saying. We're like, yeah, the world's a great mess. Where's the guy? Like, we need him now. That'd be really helpful. Thanks, Isaiah. So Isaiah keeps talking. And in the middle of Isaiah, we hear about another figure who's completely unlike the promised king in chapter 11. It says in Isaiah 42, we're introduced to a figure called a servant. And Isaiah 49, 50 and 53, they talk about this 7, as opposed to the attractive Davidic king who's going to come with a sword and prowess and pedigree and prestige, this figure who's promised is spoken of as having no beauty, no beauty which we should desire him. And whereas the anointed king coming in the early chapters of Isaiah is promised to be victorious, this figure in chapter 53 is going to suffer. Chapter 53 says this, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's the point? Whereas the Davidic king was going to lead the charge against all evil, putting down oppression, this new figure, he's going to suffer and ultimately die. Why? What's Isaiah doing? Well, if you work your way through the whole book again, you realize something the promised, strong, victorious, warrior-like Davidic king is one and the same with the suffering, silent, lamb-like, suffering servant. Not only is the spirit-anointed figure going to proclaim freedom for the captives, he's also going to bind up the broken-hearted. Why? Well, here's what Isaiah is saying. Victory will be a defeat. The strong one will be incredibly weak. Your freedom will not come through a strong leader who will conquer foreign nations under a domineering king. Your victory will come through a figure who represents you, dies the death you deserve, lives the life you should have lived. Jubilee, in other words, it's not taken by force. It's won through suffering. Now, all the governments in the world are listening in at this point to this ancient prophetic text. Why? Because everybody wants to know the best way to deal with evil, am I right? Like what's the new legislation we need? What's the policy we need to write? What's the education we need to inform? What's the change we need to make? What's the economic stimulation we need to provide? What do we need to do? How do we get rid of it? We all agree it's there. And the Bible's answer is utterly unique. From Isaiah's prophecy... All the way through to the present, even today, Israel has remained under foreign rule and oppression. After the Persians, it was the Greeks, then the Egyptians, then it was the Syrians, then it was Rome. But 500 years later, after Isaiah's prophesying this unknown figure, a young Jewish man walks into a synagogue in Nazareth, gets handed a scroll and reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read these words. You've read them before. As was his custom, this figure, he gives commentary on the text, and he takes the scroll, hands it back to the attendant who puts it in the box that would sit in the center of the synagogue, and he uses eight profound words. This man's name was Jesus. And with a microphone in his hand, he dropped it and said, Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus didn't have a microphone, heard some of you snicker. But, takeaway point's this the Davidic king and the suffering servant, as the prophet Isaiah looks upon the horizon of history, now gets embodied in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm the guy. Now, how do we know this to be true? Well, when Jesus came, he didn't come with shout of trumpets. He was born in a manger. When Jesus came, he conquered not the evil by sword of an oppressive and ruling nation. He he conquered creation through the power of his word. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He resurrected the dead. He performed all these signs and miracles so that we would know he's really the one in charge. And once we were finally convinced in Luke chapter 9, five chapters after the passage we just read, scholars note and they zoom in on this language because Luke says something like this. Having done everything he needed to, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Having convinced us that he was the suffering servant and the Davidic king, the long-awaited Messiah that we'd hoped for, that verse one prophesies, he sets his face toward Jerusalem as if he always intended it to be that way. Why? Well, Christians believe that in Jerusalem, Jesus suffered the death that sinners deserve, that Jesus made himself a slave so that we might be free, that Jesus was broken so that we might be made whole, that Jesus paid our debt so that we would live in the riches of him, that Jesus bore in his body our suffering, our sin, our brokenness, and our decay. Why? To save us, to free us, to bind up our broken hearts. In other words, Jesus went to the cross so that he could say to each and every single human, Jubilee. You can be free, free from slavery, free even for, from yourself. Jesus dies our death and gives his followers his life. How do we know this? Well, verse 3 of chapter 61 in the book of Isaiah just says these words, the anointed one coming is going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. In dying, Jesus takes our ashes, let me just put it that way, and gives us a beautiful headdress. He takes our mourning and makes it gladness. He takes our faint spirit and gives us the garment of praise. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gives us the greatest gift of joy by giving himself to us and for us. He's the one who came. Now, how much time do I have? Okay. They say the definition of insanity is doing something repeatedly and expecting a different result. And I think, as humans, we're really good at expecting to find joy in all the wrong places. Now, how do I know this? Let me give you a quote from a philosopher and let me argue it with a few examples. Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and philosopher, he put it like this, all men... He's writing at a different time, so read human when I say that. But he said it like this, all men seek joy. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What's he saying? He's saying, look at your life, take an audit. What's the thing you chase after? Realise this, you're looking for joy. Now, we do this in all the wrong ways, and it never really satisfies, and we find that actually the superficial things we long after, we, find, we want them to bring us fundamental sort of satisfaction. I think we do this on Christmas. Have you ever noticed that our expectation for Christmas Day far outweighs the delight we experience in it? you ever noticed that? It's just like, it's going to be amazing, and it just isn't, And particularly if like, this time of year is really difficult for you. Uh, and you don't have the family you expected to have or the family you did have that you no no longer have with you, and this day is not a sort of cause for joy and celebration but just a reminder of all the things that really make you upset. Or, or, or maybe you're the kind of person who just really loves gift giving and so you expect to open up this present on Christmas Day and it just to blow your mind with its relevance for your life, its appropriateness for your life. It's, they haven't spent too much money so that way our bank accounts are good, particularly if you share one. But at the same time, they spent more than I expected them to and so that's really exciting for me because now I get this gift and I didn't really have to work for it. But what happens? You play with it for a little bit, whether it's a toy or you sit in your new car for a little bit and the new car smell fades off, and that's just a little bit like life. All the things we entrust to give us joy, they just wear off after a while. They don't endure. They don't persevere. They don't ultimately satisfy. And I think Human life is just a little bit like this. We look for joy in all the wrong places. And I think the fact that it keeps coming up short is a clue to us that we're made for a deeper joy and a more lasting satisfaction than we could have ever hoped for. Uh, the richest man in the 20th century was a guy named John D. Rockefeller. He was a hotel tyrant. Tyrant? Tycoon. Not a hotel dictator. Tycoon. And uh, richest man at the time, earliest, earliest, early, early 20th century, and he was once asked this question how much money is enough and famously he said just a little bit more some of us really like traveling just let me go here for a second you know i'm going camping on the 26th of december i'm pretty pumped about it but i i'm the definition of insane cuz every time i plan a trip i just think this is going to be awesome it's going to be tranquil. I'm going to get my recliner camping chair that's still in the plastic wrapping from Anaconda. I'm going to whip it out, and I'm going to sit. Yes. I know I'll get there, and my mind will start racing. And the same laboriousness of life, brokenness of my heart, thorns and thistles of my weak They'll start invading my thought life as I sit there, and I'll realise that the hope and expectation I'd placed in being satisfied through a camping trip actually won't deliver. Someone who articulated this much more eloquently was a philosopher by the name of Alain de Botton, and he said in his book, The Art of Travel, the problem with placing our hope for satisfaction in travel is ill-founded, because when we go somewhere to escape somewhere else, we take ourselves with us. What's he saying? We look for joy in all the wrong places. And here, because of someone who came, is the offer that you can have the most sustainable, the most ecstatic, the most incredible, the most eternal joy ever found. And and what is that joy? It's receiving Jesus Christ, who on the cross said, everything's done so that by grace through faith, not by works or performance, we can have relationship with the God who made us for himself. That's the invitation in fact, let me just read, um, let, me, let me say it like this. We, re, we, we sang a song by Isaac Watts just before, Joy to the World What. Now this Christmas, in your heart of hearts, how would you answer that if the hymn writer didn't answer it for you? Joy to the world, I got the job. Joy to the world, my son turned up for Christmas. Joy to the world, I got the present I longed for. Trivial as it is, it still means something to me. Here's how the hymn writer answers it. And here's how the Bible answers it. Here's how Christmas answers it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. There's a coming day where all the sad things come untrue, but there has been a day that we now get to walk in relationship with him because of what he's done. It's finished on the cross. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What's the last line? Let every heart prepare him room. And if you do that, heaven and nature will sing. So we're going to sing in a moment, but why don't you stand and we're going to respond. And what are we responding to? We're responding to this. Unless you put your joy in Jesus, your joy just won't last. And we know that to be the case because there's a joy coming that completely relativizes all earthly burdens. And there's a joy that has came has come in Jesus Christ, because of which I now have the most incredible gift imaginable. Relationship with God. And so I want to invite you, if you've never responded to that invitation to relationship, you get a chance to right now. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, here's my question. And I don't want to overpromise and under deliver here. I'm not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings for the rest of your life. I'm not talking about life being easy. I'm talking about having the deepest part of your heart most satisfied because you know the God who made you for himself. And so if you want to know that joy here on this Sunday morning, can I invite you just to raise your hand where you are. If you've never responded to this invitation in particular, we'd love to just pray with you. Thank you. I see that hand. I'm going to pray with you in a moment. Wonderful, I see that hand as well. Thank you so much. Really helpful. And we're going to do this actually just as a church family. And to to do it, we're going to pray a really simple prayer. And it's just called a prayer of repentance. It's saying, God, I turn from this way and I now step into this way, all in relationship with Jesus Christ. We do that by saying, sorry, thank you, and please. So if you're able, would you pray this prayer out loud just to encourage those who might be praying it for the first time? And if you're like, I don't want to pray that prayer. I already know Jesus. I'd say this prayer is the shape of your walk with Jesus. Let's pray it together. And so repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you that you will come. Sorry for rejecting you. Please come into my life. Fill me. Walk with me. And help me follow Jesus. For it's in His name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for making that decision. Best decision you've ever made. Your life is not the same from this moment onwards. You get to walk with Him. But for those of us for whom this is normal, walking with Jesus, you've seen those for the first time just now repent. I think there's some things that we might want to repent of. One of the ways to experience the presence of joy is actually just to reject the earthly things that we trusted to give us that joy. And so as we step into worship right now, here's the invitation. Why don't you just in the quiet of your own heart name what you're holding on to and just admit to God that unless I find my joy in you, Jesus, that won't last. And so we're going to sing. Uh, The band will introduce the song and we'll lift our voices to heaven. Um, But right now, heaven and nature is singing. So why don't we? Let's worship together.
0: Thanks again for listening to the New Life podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or connect with us through our Instagram or Facebook page. For more information about Christmas at New Life, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. We pray you have a great week and
2: a very Merry Christmas. Be blessed.